Yes, let's pray together. God, you are great, and we recognize this morning the greatness of your power. As the Lord of all creation who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it, and you made us. You made us to know you. You made us to love you. You made us to enjoy relationship with you and to reflect your glory in the world. Lord, we're also so thankful that despite our sin, despite our failures, you have made a way for us to be saved, to be reconciled to you through grace. We thank you for the gift of your son, the death and resurrection of Jesus, who redeems us from sin. And we do ask that today as we sit under the the teaching of your word, that you would glorify your name in and through us, that you would speak to us, that you would imprint your truth on our hearts so that we might love you and serve you as we ought. We pray for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles up this morning to Luke chapter 8. As, uh, as Carrie mentioned earlier, um, and as I'm sure all of you know, today is Mother's Day. So it's good to say Happy Mother's Day. Uh, the Bible, in fact, the Ten Commandments, tells us that we're to honor our father and mother. So if you're cynical, like me, and you say, okay, this is another Hallmark situation where they're making an excuse to sell flowers and cards and chocolates... Uh, Don't be too cynical. The Bible says it's a good thing to give honor where honor is due. And it is proper and right. God is actually honored when we honor those who gave us life, our parents, our mother, and our father. In fact, the rest of the scriptures, not just the Ten Commandments, um, upholds the goodness and the necessity of honoring our parents. Proverbs stresses that it's the wise son who honors his mother and father. And the New Testament repeats uh, this teaching as well, that we are to honor and care for, provide for our family members. I'm very thankful this morning for my own mom. I think sometimes she listens or watches later. So mom, I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, I am so grateful. I was thinking this morning um, about how my mom's investment in my life shaped the way I view the word and shaped the way I view the world. Her quiet faithfulness and the way she loved me and my siblings, I'm the oldest of six, uh, her labors and investments there have borne so much fruit in my life in ways she probably doesn't even realize. And I'm very thankful for her. I'm also thankful for my wife, Sarah. She's here today, the wife, the, my wife and the mother of our four children. And only God knows her investments and her sacrifices and the fruit that comes from that. And I'm very thankful for her and want to honor her as well. I know many of you here today are mothers, and God sees that, and and that role, that job, although the world may not honor it and appreciate it, that is one of the most world-changing things you can do. At the same time, Mother's Day can be kind of a bittersweet time for those of you who have said goodbye to your mother, maybe recently or a long time ago, those of you who long to be mothers, and that's become a difficult thing. Uh, These days can be bittersweet. Uh, Today is Mother's Day. However, the sermon today is not really a Mother's Day sermon. I mean, it is a sermon and it is Mother's Day, but I wasn't intending to preach a Mother's Day sermon. I was intending to just go through the Gospel of Luke. And wouldn't you know it, it just so happens that our text today mentions mothers. I promise I didn't do this on purpose. But I would like to read the text with you, and then you'll see the situation I'm in. Luke chapter 8, verse 19 through 21. And all joking aside, this is God's word to us today. And it is good, and it is true, and it is for us. Starting in verse 19, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. 
But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So happy Mother's Day. (laughs) I did not plan this, but again, in God's providence, as we're going through the gospel of Luke, this is where we happen to land. And although at first glance, as you first read these verses, it may feel a bit abrasive. It may even seem untimely. But if you'll stick with me this morning, I hope that you'll see that there is in this text a precious gospel truth. And the truth is that through the gospel, God is bringing about the formation of a new family. And this is a theological reality, a truth that has great implications for us. It changes how we think about our identity in Christ. This this changes how we think about our losses and our griefs in this world. And it changes how we think about the church. So in the context here, just to remind you where we've been in Luke chapter 8, we've been seeing over and over again the importance of hearing rightly, the importance of hearing. Jesus has illustrated this truth in the parable of the soils. The seed falls on different kinds of soil, and while all hear, there are some who respond rightly, who hear rightly and bear fruit. Following that parable, he explained to his disciples, and he said, take care then how you hear. And he taught them about the purpose of God's revelation and the necessity of responding to the truth. And now in this text, in chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, Jesus is still talking about hearing. Now we see the result of hearing rightly. The result of hearing rightly, of receiving and responding to the message of Christ, is that it produces a new family. Verse 21, my mother and my brothers are those who hear There's that key word again. They hear the word of God and do it. The result of right hearing is that it produces a new family. This is a very brief text, and it's really focused in on this pronouncement of Jesus, this pronouncement that he gives. And the setting for this situation is verses 19 through 20. Jesus is being sought by his family, specifically his mother and his brothers, Joseph isn't mentioned here. In fact, he really never appears in any of the narratives of the gospel after the the birth of Jesus. It seems likely that Joseph actually died at some point prior to Jesus beginning his public ministry. But Mary is mentioned, and she is a main character throughout the gospels. She often appears in the narratives. She's there, obviously, at his birth, but also at his death and even afterwards. And Mary is full of faith throughout the Gospels. She is a good example of someone who receives and trusts and believes in this message that her own son is preaching. So it's a very positive portrait of Mary that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even though she can be, as some mothers can be, sometimes a bit protective. And sometimes she doesn't always understand. In fact, earlier on in Luke, we saw that in this story where Jesus was a young boy and they had traveled to Jerusalem, well, the family caravan had left, but Jesus got forgotten. He was left behind. They assumed he was, you know, riding in the other car, and so they didn't realize he wasn't with them. When they returned to Jerusalem, it says his parents saw him. They were astonished, and his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Mary believed. She's full of faith. Sometimes she's a bit protective, and sometimes she doesn't quite understand. And we'll see 
another instance of that here in our text in chapter 8. So his mother comes to him, but also his brothers come. They're not named here, but they are named in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 tells us about how Jesus was not accepted in Nazareth, his hometown. They rejected him. In Mark chapter 6, the residents of Nazareth say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas, or you could say Jude, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They said, listen, Jesus is acting like some big shot, this traveling rabbi claiming to be the Messiah, but we know this kid. I mean, his brothers live here in our neighborhood. He's nothing special. And they list the names of Jesus' brothers, and they mention his sisters as well. And in John chapter 7, in verse 5, we're told that his brothers did not actually believe in him. They grew up with him. That might have been difficult, actually, to have a brother who's literally perfect. But they grew up with Jesus, and they were very aware of his public ministry, but they did not believe in him. They didn't buy it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus makes a special appearance to his brother James after the resurrection. Jesus pursues his brothers. He wants to make sure that they fully realize who he is. And in Acts chapter 1, we find the early disciples and the apostles gathered together And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1 that his brothers are there with them. They are praying with the followers of Jesus. So they eventually do come to believe. In fact, James would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jude would author a book of the Bible. So these brothers have come with their mother, and they're coming to Jesus. And I want to take just what may be a little bit of a rabbit trail here, because Some of you perhaps have a background or some familiarity with the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church, they claim the perpetual virginity of Mary. They claim that Mary never had any other children. And so this text causes a little bit of a problem then if Jesus' brothers are coming to him. Now, they have some arguments for this. Some will claim that this word brother should actually be translated cousin, They'll say, well, you know, this word is kind of broad, and it doesn't have to literally mean a biological brother. But the problem is the word here, Adelphoi, is always translated brother. And there's a different word for cousin. If Luke wanted to describe his cousins, he could have used a different word, anepsios. That's a word we find in Colossians 4.10. It describes John Mark as the cousin of Barnabas. So the word means brothers. Others will claim that Joseph was perhaps an older man who had previously been married. You know, he was now widowed and he had children from his first wife. But this is pure speculation. There's no evidence that Joseph was an older man who was previously married. There's no evidence in the Bible. There's no historical evidence of this. And besides, if Joseph did have sons that were older than Jesus, that would cause a problem because it would mean someone else was Joseph's heir. That would disrupt Jesus' claim to the throne of David. It would cause a problem with him being presented as the Messiah. Finally, the language of the Gospels indicates that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. If this happened before they came together... It's implying that eventually they did come together. Similarly, in Luke 2, verse 7, it says, She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. If Jesus is her firstborn son, 
it implies that there were other sons that came later. So these brothers, I'm convinced, are, her, are Jesus's half-brothers. They are born to Joseph and Mary. So Mary is truly blessed among women. She is. And it is right that every generation calls her blessed. She gave birth to our Savior. That is a big deal. But we do not honor Mary by denying her role as a mother to her other children after Jesus. So that's a brief rabbit trail, but it's a great time to touch on this point. This is who is coming to Jesus. It is his mother, Mary, and it is his brothers, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon. So Mary's come. Jesus' younger brothers have come. But here's the question. Why did they come? Why is Jesus' family approaching him here in Luke chapter 8? Well, Luke doesn't really fill in the why, but Mark does. Mark chapter 3 describes this scene as well, and he gives us a little bit more detail. And I think it's helpful to understand why Jesus says what he says. In Mark 3.20, it says that Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. They are coming to seize Jesus to grab him. They think he's out of his mind. This is a family intervention. This is what you might call a citizen's arrest. And it's for his own good. Perhaps Mary is motivated by her well-meaning concern. She's worried that Jesus is offending and outraging people who have the power to put him in prison and even put him to death. So she's obviously a protective mother. Perhaps his brothers who don't believe in him are embarrassed. They can't believe that he's out there saying the things that he's saying. And for his own good, they're going to grab that long, you know, hooked pole and sort of pull him off the stage, right? Get him out of the spotlight. But the problem is they can't get to Jesus. They can't get to him because of the crowd. So verse 20 tells us that people pass the word along. Jesus was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you which means that this is now a public conversation. There's other people listening in to see what's going to happen. People are watching and all eyes are on Jesus. How are you going to handle this situation as your mother and your brothers are coming and they're saying, Jesus, it's time to go home. You need to stop this. So this is sort of the the crisis, the, the moment in which Jesus offers this pronouncement. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And that's really the heart of this passage. It's the main point. And from this pronouncement, I want to draw out three principles for us this morning. And the first is this. The first principle, number one, is that right hearing is inseparable from doing. Rightly hearing the word of God goes hand in hand with doing what the word commands. Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He links those together. The fruit of faith is obedience. That's what faith produces. This connection between hearing and doing, it's not new. If you remember a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 6, Verse 46, we saw that Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And Jesus goes on to to share this parable of the man who builds his house on a rock. He says that's the one who hears and does. And the one who builds his house on the sand. 
It says that's the one who hears but does not do, and it leads to destruction. So it's not a new idea, and this won't be the last time that Jesus touches on it either. In Luke chapter 11, verse 27, there's a woman in the crowd who raises her voice and says to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Jesus is always emphasizing here the importance, the connection between hearing and doing. And I think his brother James picked up on it because later he would write these famous words in James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearing and doing. Doing the will of God is really evidence of saving faith. Trusting that God's word is true. It shows that you believe in God and that his gospel is what gives you life and that you now belong to him as one who's been redeemed by the blood of Christ. 1 John 2.17 tells us the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Doing the will of God is a sign that you have been born again and that you truly know Christ. Matthew 7, 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Doing the will of the Father shows that we really do know him. So when Jesus refers here to those who hear and do, here's the point. He's talking about true believers. He's defining true believers, those who have genuine faith. So Jesus is not talking about different levels of Christian maturity people who are really good at obeying and people who struggle to obey. He's not talking about different levels of seriousness about our faith. You know, there's those really hardcore Christians who are all about, you know, doing all the Christian life stuff. And then there's others who, you know, they've prayed a prayer at one point, but nothing has changed. No, Jesus is talking here. He's drawing a line about those who really believe and those who don't. Those who hear the word of God and do it are those who are born again. So this reality that right hearing is inseparable from doing, that's principle number one, and it leads us to a second principle. Number two, right hearing creates a new community. It's a new community. Those who genuinely believe, who have heard the word of God, they've heard the gospel, they've responded in repentance and faith, which then leads to a life of striving to obey Christ, that creates a new community. True hearing not only produces fruit, it creates a family. Each of us has a natural family. You can't be alive unless at one point you had a father and a mother. Perhaps you have some siblings as well. There's a natural family. Many of us have our chosen family as well. Many of you have chosen a spouse. Some of you have adopted children. We have in-laws. I have some of my in-laws here today. That's a chosen family that expands the the definition of what your family is, even beyond the natural family. And, And to this understanding of family, Jesus is adding a new dimension. He's now talking about your spiritual family, your spiritual family. The author of Hebrews, referring back to Psalm 22, says this about Jesus, that he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified All have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus calls those who believe his brothers, his sisters. Genuine faith 
When you hear the word of God and respond rightly, it, it redefines our relationship with God. We are reconciled with God by his grace. But we're not only reconciled with God. We're also given a new relationship with other people who believe in Christ. We are linked with each other. Those who relate to God as father can call one another brother and sister. And this familial bond is a gospel reality. This becomes part of our identity in Christ, that we are a family. That's a theological reality. Galatians 3.26 says that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Did you catch that? Through faith, you are all sons and daughters of God. This is a gospel reality. Ephesians 2.19 says we are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Household of God, that's family language. And this is really an expression of God's love for us. His love draws us into his family. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. So God in his grace adopts us into his family. This was his plan from the beginning. Ephesians 1, 5 says he predestined us for adoption. Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We've been adopted in. This is a new reality. It's a spiritual reality that we are a family. And this is why throughout the New Testament, believers come to address one another most commonly as brothers. When you say good morning, brother, and shake somebody's hand, that's not just some kind of quaint little Christian culture thing. That is a theological pronouncement, that you are my brother, you are my sister, if we both share faith in Christ and we have a common father. So no more will kinship be primarily determined by bloodline. No more is our kinship determined primarily by our ethnicity or by our nationality. No, those who share faith in Christ are now defined by the gospel in family terms. And Jesus Christ himself considers us family. He calls us his mother, his brothers, his sisters. So this is a a doctrine. This is a reality that needs to be understood and acknowledged. But Jesus isn't just making a theological pronouncement. It's also intensely practical. There's a third principle I want to bring out. Not only does right hearing create a new community, but third, right hearing creates a new loyalty. A new loyalty. With this reality of being a family comes certain obligations. Consider what's happening here in our text in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is saying no. He's saying no to his mom. He's saying no to his brothers. The question is why? Is Jesus repudiating his natural family? Is Jesus disavowing them, saying, you don't mean anything to me? No, not at all. That is not what Jesus is saying. And if he was, this would be a really tough text for Mother's Day. But that is not what Jesus is doing. And I think we see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus honored his earthly parents as a child. In Luke chapter 2, verse 51, in that scene where his parents come and they find him at the temple, he says, don't you understand? I must be in my father's house. But in the very next verse, it says he went with them and he was submissive to them. Jesus obeyed his parents, kids. And you need to obey your parents too. 
The gospel doesn't destroy those family relationships, not at all. In fact, in Jesus's last moments before he died, as he was hanging on the cross, some of his final words were uttered to make sure that his mom was taken care of. In John 19, 26, it says Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, his closest friend, standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. He looks at John. He says, John, my brothers don't believe in me. You do. And you know what my mom's going through as she watches me die. Please take care of her. He's making sure that his mother is cared for, even as he's breathing some of his final breaths. Jesus is not repudiating his natural family or disavowing them. Not at all. In fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they would find these religious excuses to not take care of their parents. Uh, We won't go into the the full story in Mark chapter 7, but they would financially deprive their parents and not care for them because they claimed that all their resources were dedicated to the Lord. Their investment accounts sitting in the bank were for the Lord, and so they couldn't take care of their parents. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says, you're breaking the law, not caring for your parents, and then trying to paint some religious veneer on it. And Jesus exposes that. So he's not rejecting his family when he says, the ones who hear and do the word, that's my mother and brothers. That's absolutely not what he's doing. In fact, later he would welcome and forgive his own brothers after the resurrection, forgiving them, showing them so much grace. And two of his brothers would write books of the Bible. So if that's not what Jesus is doing, if he's not repudiating and disavowing his family, why does he say that those who hear and obey are his mother and brothers? Well, again, he's not dismantling the paradigm of the natural family. He's rather underscoring the addition of this new spiritual paradigm. And it's a new paradigm, this new family, that brings with it obligations and duties. And Jesus is saying that when push comes to shove, that our spiritual duties to God outweighs, outranks our obligation and our connection even to our natural family. Friends, there will be times hopefully rare, but there will be times when our loyalty to Christ and our loyalty to his word must trump even our own loyalties to our natural families. Jesus, in this moment, in this scene, when his family comes to seize him and and to take him away so that he would stop preaching and stop exposing himself to the persecution of the Pharisees, Jesus recognizes that at this moment, He cannot comply with his family's wishes and obey his heavenly father. He's going to have to pick one or the other. Mary, although she is well-intentioned, was actually opposing God's will. Sort of like Peter in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus explains that it's necessary for him to suffer and die and rise again, and then Peter takes him aside and says, far be it from you that this should take place. Peter wants to protect Jesus. You remember what Jesus says to Peter? says, get behind me, Satan. You've not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says, you don't get it. Peter, you're actually getting in the way of what I'm supposed to be doing. I think Mary unknowingly is doing the same thing in this moment. That's why Jesus has to say no to his mother. Similarly, his brothers don't believe in him, and they're attempting to interfere with his mission. Earlier, he said that he must travel from city to city so that he can preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That is why he was sent. 
And his brothers are trying to get him to stop. They're subverting this mission. And so because of this, Jesus must, in this moment, say no. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, he actually identifies more with those who are hearing and obeying the word of God than he actually does with his own family. And friends, if this was true for Jesus, then it also must be true for us as well. Jesus makes this clear throughout his teachings. There will be times when our loyalty to Christ must take precedent over all other relationships. Luke chapter 9, verse 59, Jesus says, follow me. And one man says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus demands our absolute loyalty. He is Lord. And he must be acknowledged as Lord, submitted to as Lord. Following Jesus requires nothing less than our complete commitment, even if it sometimes may cause some friction with those that we love. In Luke chapter 12, 51, Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you know the difficulty and the pain of having people that you dearly love who do not follow Christ and they are not submitted to Christ and it puts you on opposite ends. Some of you know the joy and the blessing of having a family that is believing where you can all follow Christ together. Listen, Jesus says there may be times when following Christ has a high cost. And if this cost seems too high, if this seems like too much to ask for, Jesus warns that sometimes this challenge to our faith is really what exposes our true loyalties. In Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and this is not meaning a an attitude of malice is talking about loyalty, hate and love in Jewish society. These are covenantal terms. It's about loyalty. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The gospel creates a new family but it also creates these new loyalties, a higher obligation that is really reflective of our duty, our obligation to Christ. This is part of what it costs to be a follower of Jesus. And you might be asking yourself this morning, you're setting the bar really high. That's very difficult. And you might be asking yourself, is it worth it? Is it worth disappointing your family in order to follow Jesus? Is it worth offending someone that you love in order to follow Jesus? Is it worth it in extreme cases to perhaps even lose a relationship in order to follow Jesus? Well, the biblical answer, friends, is yes. It is worth it. 
If you've experienced the pain of that, listen to these encouraging words from Mark chapter 10. In verse 28, Peter began to say to Jesus, Look, we have left everything and followed. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says that the cost is high, but it is worth it. His reward is worth it. Jesus himself is worth it. Eternal life is worth it. So as those who have been brought into the family of Christ, Jesus wants us to recognize that our new membership, our new belonging in the family of God comes with it these redefined loyalties. The gospel creates this new community. It's a new family. So the question is, how do we respond to this today? Hopefully it makes more sense now why Jesus would say to his mother, who he submitted to as a child, who he cared for as a man, who he honored throughout his life, why he would say no to her, why he would say no to his brothers. Hopefully you're understanding this pronouncement of Jesus Christ. But how do we respond? How do we respond to this truth? Well, first of all, I have to ask you, do you belong to the family? Are you a member of the family of God? Will you hear and obey the call of the gospel to repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Listen, how you respond to Jesus determines your standing. It determines whether you're an insider or an outsider, whether you belong or whether you are still lost, whether you are in the light or still enslaved in the darkness, whether you have life in Christ or whether you're headed for destruction. Rejecting Jesus means you are on the outside looking in. But listen, if you find yourself today an outsider, someone who maybe has heard the gospel, but you've never responded in faith and repentance, listen, today you are invited to sign some adoption papers to receive this invitation to come and belong to this family that God is building. You can be brought in. John 1.12 says, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Listen, not every human being is a child of God, but you can become a child of God through faith in the gospel. Will you come and join the family? I hope you know that you are invited. And if your family is broken, if there are empty seats at your table, Christ calls you to come and become part of another family, not to replace your natural family, but it's an additional experience of God's provision for you to come and belong to this larger thing that God is doing. There's a second way we can respond to this truth this morning. Number two, this is something we ought to rejoice in. Christians, those of you who do belong to the family, this reality of what God is doing and forming a new family, this is something we ought to rejoice in. The words of Jesus provide a great comfort to us. He promises to you, friend. He promises to you a better and a perfect father. For those who are fatherless, for those who do not know their father or their father has died, or your, your relationship with your fa- father has been painful and difficult, when you come into this family, you receive a heavenly father 
who is perfect. Belonging to this family brings value. It communicates value to those of you who feel forgotten, those who feel abandoned, those who have been neglected, those who have been misunderstood. This family speaks to those needs. Jesus' words here about those who hear and do, that's my mother, those are my brothers, that offers a very real sense of belonging to those who feel lonely, those who are lacking the support and the connections here in this world that, that we're made for. Our hearts crave those things. Family is the greatest physical blessing in the world. It's the greatest joy on earth which is why it's often the source of the deepest pains because the things that are most precious and most valuable on the flip side are also the things that cause the most grief when there's loss, when there's difficulty. But Jesus offers us a chance to belong. He offers perfect love for those who ache to be loved unconditionally. He offers stability in his family for those who have been dragged through change after change after change. He offers eternal blessing to those who feel the sting of loss in this life. Listen to Isaiah 56, four through five. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. These are those who are unable to have children, those who are single and not married, historically speaking. But the principle applies today. It says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. It sounds a lot like those who hear and do the word of God, doesn't it? He says, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. God sees that loss. God sees that difficulty. And he says, if you come to me in faith, I promise that my blessing, what I am giving you, as hard as it is to imagine, is even greater than those things you don't have in this life. Christian, the fact that the gospel creates this new community, an eternal family, this is something to rejoice in. This is something to rejoice in. Whether Mother's Day for you is a day of great joy and thankfulness, or whether it's a bittersweet day and a painful day, in faith, we can look together this morning to this greater reality that there is a spiritual family, the community of the redeemed, those who hear the message of salvation in Jesus and believe. And by faith, we belong together in this family. And by faith, we can rejoice in this gift of God's grace. There's a third response to this. Not only is this something, if you're not part of the family, you should join, you should hear and obey today. And number two, this is something we rejoice in. But third, this is also a practical reality that must be lived out It's a practical reality. This truth was meant to shape the culture of the church. Not just the culture of the church universally, the culture of this church, this congregation, the people that are hearing my voice today, whether you're on the floor or in the balcony or in the basement or whether you're watching this at home, we are a family. That's what Jesus says. We should probably act like one. This is a doctrinal truth that is supposed to be lived out. Galatians 6.10 says, As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. You and I are called to do good to one another. We have a special obligation to one another as members of the household of faith. 
The way we interact with each other is to be shaped by this truth that we are a family. That's why Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. This is to shape the way we interact with each other. This idea that all believers everywhere comprise this massive spiritual eternal family, that's a universal truth. We are a family with all people who have ever believed and who ever will believe. But you know how that universal truth is experienced? It's experienced in the local church. People with names and faces who gather together week in and week out to sit under the teaching of God's word, to serve one another, and to cooperate in sharing the gospel with the world. The church in its local physical form is to be a family. And if that's what we are, if that's what's true, then the question is, how are we doing living that out? Are we acting like a family? I think in many ways, this church does a good job with that. But listen, this family dynamic, there's places where our church does a good job of that. Some of you do an excellent job of living this out. But listen, just because things have been strong in the past doesn't mean they will continue to be. If there's no effort, if there's no ongoing investment, if there's no cultivation of this family dynamic within the body of Christ, this is something that over time erodes. This is something that over time loses steam. This is something that can be diluted. New people come into the church who perhaps have never learned what it looks like to be a part of a healthy body. Maybe they're new Christians, new believers who haven't been taught how to do this. We have to promote it. We have to model it. We have to teach it. We have to pursue it. If this reality of being a family is here, don't presume that it always will. But you know what? We don't do this perfectly. There's ways in which this church can grow, ways in which this body needs to change, ways in which some of you perhaps have fallen short of what God calls us to, of being a spiritual family. We should ask ourselves why. Why is this family dynamic sometimes missing in the church and in our own lives? I don't think the problem, at least here at Redemption Hill, I don't think the problem is so much a failure to understand the truth. I probably didn't teach anything you didn't already know, that when we believe the gospel, we become part of a family, right? We know that. I think it's a failure to love that truth. I know that you know this doctrine, but do you love that truth? Do you love the truth that we have been made into a new family? Are you resolving to live in light of that truth? Perhaps we need to confess today some ways in which our lives have been out of step with the gospel we claim to believe in. If that's you, if you see a failure not in other people but in yourself, confess that today. Confess to God that you have lived in a manner that's out of step with what the gospel tells us and resolve to obey. But there's some good news today. If this family dynamic is perhaps missing in certain aspects of our church's life, if this family reality is not being lived out consistently in your life, the good news is this family dynamic can be built. This can grow. Things can change. We don't have to settle for just saying it is what it is. No. In fact, years ago, I read a statement by another pastor, and it's something that stuck with me. I'd like to read it for you. He writes, when I ask newcomers 
what brings them to our church, the most common reply is, I'm looking for community. I often wince when I hear that phrase, fearing they won't stay for long. It's not that desiring community is a bad thing. The problem is the assumption that community is found, like stumbling upon a hidden treasure. One cannot find community because it isn't something to be discovered. Community is never found, only built. And I think he's right. And I've met people like that. I've felt like that myself before, where you're looking for something, trying to find the people that will meet your needs and the experiences that you long for, trying to fill that empty cup and thinking there must be some church out there that does it perfectly. I just need to find it and go to it. But the reality is this is something that has to be cultivated. It takes work. It takes work. So what I'd like to propose is that we as a church family, that we commit together to keep building to keep growing together as the household of God. That we as a church would believe that we are a family, because Jesus says so, but that we would also commit ourselves to trying to act like it. So ask yourself, really practical question, what's one thing that would change if you today decided that you're going to personally try to live out the reality of Jesus' words? What's one thing you could do differently? What's one thing that might change in your connection to this church, your relationships with people in this church. If the Lord lays on your heart something that can be done in an effort to pursue and build this, to live out this gospel reality, that's something you should do. That's something that you should do in obedience to Christ. Through the gospel, God is bringing about the formation of a new family. We see that in this text today. And this is what gives us our sense of identity and belonging, isn't it? On Mother's Day and every day. This is what gives us our identity. It's a source of comfort for those who suffer difficulty and loss. And I hope it is a balm and a comfort to those of you who may be struggling today. But this reality is also one that ought to shape how we engage with our fellow believers. There's some action items here for us today that we would seek to live out this reality in this local church. So let's embrace one another as fellow members of the family. We are a family that hears and obeys the word, a family that's called to forsake all in order to follow Christ, and a family that believes Jesus and his reward are worth it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the great gift as we reflect on mothers today. We thank you for the great gift that mothers often are. We thank you for the way you use moms to give life, to grow life, Thank you for the many mothers in this room who have sacrificed and served and poured themselves out for their children. Pray that you would bless them for their labors. Pray that those of us who um, can still communicate with our mothers would be able to rightly honor them today. Give them the, the recognition and the thanks that is due to them. And Lord, as we think about the, the even bigger concept of spiritual family, this identity we have as members of the household of God, Pray that you would help us to recognize where our highest loyalties ought to lie. And I ask that you would help us as a church to live out this reality, to treat one another as brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, that there would be a tenderness and a care with the relationships in the church, that there would be a willingness, even when family gets a little dysfunctional sometimes and we have conflict and there are offenses and there are disappointments, I pray that you would help us to love one another, to work through those challenges. 
and to live in light of this precious truth that you have called us to yourself from different places in the world, different levels in society, different walks of life. You've called us together into a family. Give us a sense of gratitude. I pray that you would comfort those who may feel the sting of loss or disappointment today. Comfort them with this truth. Lord, I pray that you would inspire us and move us towards a more faithful way of living that truly does display the goodness of your gospel, the truth that we belong together because we belong to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your gift of grace to us and ask that you be glorified in this church. In your name, amen.